that, didn't I? Oh, good. Um, I want to do a brief quiz, and I want to welcome Riley back. Some of you have seen him. Spent, those don't know, spent the last two months in Uganda, East Africa. And uh, not because he's back, but it kind of fits a little bit. I want to ask you some questions. Uh, the first question is this. How do you put a giraffe in a refrigerator? And maybe you haven't thought much about putting a giraffe in a refrigerator. You know, as I was looking through these questions, um, I found that the internet is an amazing place. And if you type in giraffe in a refrigerator, you can actually come up with pictures of giraffes in the refrigerator. So it can be done. The question is how? And the answer is open the door, put in the giraffe, and close the door. See, this question is to test whether you tend to do simple things in an overly complicated way. I think when it comes to giraffes in refrigerators, we might think of a complicated methodology to do this. But the questions really will help determine whether you are qualified to handle difficult circumstances and become a professional manager. So uh, you can kind of gauge yourself. The second question is this. How do you put an elephant in the refrigerator? And you might be thinking, open the door, put in the elephant, close the door. But that would be wrong. Because what you have to do is open the door, remove the giraffe, put the elephant in the refrigerator, and close the door. This tests your ability to think through the repercussions of previous actions. <laughs> okay? Uh, let, let's take the question number three. The Lion King is hosting an animal conference, and all the animals attend except one. Which animal would that be? It is the elephant, because remember, you had put him in the refrigerator. This tests your memory, <laughs> and many of you did very well with that. There's a river that you must cross, but it is used by crocodiles, and you don't have a boat. How do you manage it? Well, the correct answer is you jump into the river and swim across. Remember, all the crocodiles are attending the animal meeting. This tests whether or not you quickly learn from your previous mistakes. Anderson Consulting Worldwide said 90% of professionals that they tested got all the answers wrong. <laughs> but many preschoolers got several of the answers correct. <laughs> this conclu conclusively disproves the theory that most professionals have the brain of a four-year-old. <laughs> hmm. <laughs> One more question. Wasn't in his quiz, but uh, there's a circumstance beyond comprehension. You are all alone, you are weak, and you are exhausted. You see no one to help. How do you manage it? Today in Psalms 22, that is the circumstance. You have, do you have the resources? Do you have the insights to manage your circumstances well, even when the ultimate questions fill your mind and you don't see a way out? Psalms 22 as a whole is not as famous as its first verse. You probably know the first verse of Psalms 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We all have heard that. The rest of the psalm we probably glossed right over during the read through the Bible. We just zipped right beyond it and uh, kept on moving. 
Many of us perhaps thought that these words were words from the lips of Jesus as an original statement that he proclaimed on the cross. But today you're going to discover that that is not an original statement from the cross of Calvary. Jesus was speaking the word of a song in the 22nd Psalm, a song that he had learned as a child in the Judaic culture and education system. See, it's not about a song about Christ. It is a psalm of David. And it comes from a time when David is feeling alone and David is feeling that uh, he is abandoned, he is deserted, he has been isolated, he is all alone. Ever been there? He cries out to God, understanding that he felt God is the one that had left him alone. And he's crying out not only because he feels alone, but it's a cry to God. It's a cry to the God who got him in the circumstance and saying, why have you left me here? Can I ask you a question? Have you ever felt, have you ever followed God into somewhere or into something? And when you got into that somewhere or that something, the mess was so big and you said, now God, you got me into this mess, so why do I feel all of a sudden like I'm all by myself? So to really get an understanding of this passage, you have to take it out of its Christological context. There is an understanding that this is David's circumstances that were ultimately fulfilled in Christ. However, you can't see Christ in it quite yet. You have to see Jesus in light of the psalm, not the psalm in light of Jesus. Do you follow me? Jesus, because in the New Testament, whenever somebody quoted from the Old Testament, it was because of what the author meant in the Old Testament when they wrote it. That's why the New Testament writer was quoting it, because they identified with that circumstance what the author intended. And so in order to really understand this, Psalms, you can't really talk about what Jesus was going through. You've got to understand what David went through. It's a cry for help. It's a cry for deliverance. Uh, deliverance out of something that you never would have been in had you not followed God in the first place. Well, that almost sounds sacrilegious, doesn't it? Isn't it amazing that sometimes when you're following God, it can often appear that you're in more of a mess than you were before you decided to follow him? <laughs> it's amazing. Sometimes you follow God and you wonder why in the world you followed him because you ended up, where you ended up was not what you thought at all. And I think it's amazing that every now and then you can feel like you're all by yourself when you're being obedient in following God where he has led. Let me show you an important truth here. You have to initially understand that when he says, why hast thou forsaken me, he is not talking about the absence of God's presence. Why have you forsaken me? He's not saying, why have you left me? What he's talking to God about is the activity of God. What do I mean? When he says, God, 
you're forsaking me. What the text and the spirit of the text suggests is that he's saying, God, it, it feels like you're ignoring me. Uh, those of you that have kids understand this. I'm talking to you, but you're not listening. I'm talking to you, but you're not reacting to what I'm saying. It's not that you're not here, but God, you're not paying attention. You're not, you're not acting on my behalf like I want you to. And the reason I feel that you're ignoring me is because I don't see anything happening like I expect to happen. This is really the war between the flesh and the spirit. The spirit knows what God is, but the flesh has to feel and see things. And David is equating activity with acknowledgement, and try this word on, acquiescence. In other words, David is saying, David is equating God's acknowledgement of his prayer and acquiescence to his request with the activity that follows. So for David, if God doesn't do anything, then God's just not up to anything. Now, those who have been in our Sunday school class the last several weeks know that God is up to something, isn't he? Even though I may not know what it is, I may not understand it is or why it is, I know that God is up to something. Even when I feel like I'm not communicating, we might say it this way, God, I've been praying and fasting about this mess that you got me into, and you're not responding. <laughs> Have you ever prayed and nothing appeared to be happening? Nothing appears to be changing? Might call this the tyranny of theology of activity. Because when you talk, going back to that flesh in the spirit, the spirit moves on the basis of what I know. The flesh is driven on the basis of what I feel. And often we think we are blessed by what God does for us. And so when God doesn't do for you what you ask God to do for you, you don't think you're being blessed and you think that God is ignoring you. Did you catch all that? <laughs> All of us are human, and sometimes we think that God is blessing us and doing for us, and the way that we know that, we think God is with us when things are visibly happening. I'll tell you where that leads. It leads to stuff. We equate God with the stuff that we have. Well, prayer is not about getting stuff from God. It's not getting what we want from God, as we talked about even this morning in, in class. Prayer is about what God wants from us. Because God is God, he doesn't need anything from us. Psalms 50, in fact, turn there with me for just a moment. I lost my watch this morning, so I got lots of time. Psalm 50, look at the beginning. It says, the mighty one, God, the Lord. Well, how many times do you have to be told who it is? It's rather emphatic. God is enough for me. The Lord is enough for me. He defines who he is. He says, the mighty one, just to remind you of his nature and his character and his ability, 
the mighty one, God the Lord, has spoken and called the earth from the rising of the sun to its going down. God's the one that put it there. God's the one that makes it turn. God's the one that makes the, the world go around the sun. He makes it daytime. He makes it nighttime. He sustains it. He created it. He sustains it. He will demolish it all in his time. God, the mighty one, the Lord. Now, now go down with me to verse 7. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, and I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Uh, let me say it again, just in case you missed it in verse 1. I am still God. And by the way, I'm your God. I'm the God of influence. I'm the God of power. I don't need you. He's going to define that here. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. Israel, I'll testify against you. I am your God. I will not rebuke you for your sacrifices or your burnt offerings, which, you or which are continually before me. Verse 9. I will not take a bull from your house nor goats out of your folds. Why? For every beast of the forest is mine. I don't need yours. The cattle on a thousand hills are mine. I know all the birds of the mountains and the wild beasts of the field. They're mine. Whose are they? The mighty one, God, the Lord, your God. Verse 12, he says, by the way, if I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. I know you don't read it with that inflection, do you? That doesn't sound holy. Why? For the world is mine in all of its fullness. Well, I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats. He's laughing. There's mockery, mockery in here. The whole point here is God is God and he doesn't need us. Let me develop this a little bit. You'll have to write quickly, but I'll leave it up here for a while so you can fill in some of the blanks. Even if I go hungry, he says, I wouldn't tell you. There'd be no point. There's nothing you can do for me. The cattle on a thousand hills belong to me. I am self-sufficient. I am self-existent. Uh, uh, he does not need our faith. He is holy. He doesn't need our moral support. God is sovereign. Sovereign means he has authority over all things everywhere at all times, and he doesn't need our permission. God owns all things he doesn't need our money. I know I asked for that a little while ago, but guess what? He doesn't need it. God is all-knowing. He's omnipresent. Doesn't need our company. He's all-knowing. He doesn't need our advice. God is all-powerful. He doesn't need our hope. God needs nothing from us. Now, why emphasize that? There's something he wants from us, not needs. There's a big difference. And though there is something that we want from him, what he wants from us is more important than what we want from him. As I mentioned, prayer is not about stuff. It's not about telling God what I want and giving him my list and, and hoping he'll fulfill all my desires. Prayer is about a relationship with him. Prayer is about communing with him. It's about aligning my desires and my wants with his purpose in his will. See, God wants my allegiance. God wants my affection. God desires my attention and my appreciation to him. 
Does he need it? No, he is God, the almighty God, your God, the God of creation. But he desires a relationship with you and me. Despite all that he is, he loves us enough to want a relationship with us. A relationship is communion. It's fellowship. It's interaction. It's getting to know. It's not about coming and being in church on Sunday morning and then ignoring him the rest of my life. It's not about having a five-minute devotion and then ignoring him the rest of my day. It's communion, it's fellowship, it's interaction, it's a relationship. And because prayer is not about stuff, it is about relationship and connection with God who wants that allegiance from us. I go throughout Scripture, Second Chronicles 7, 14. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, it's about a relationship. It's not about do this and this and then I will do that. Not tit for tat. It's about a relationship. Jeremiah 29, 11, I know the thoughts I have for you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not evil, to give you a hope and a future. It's about a relationship. That's not the end of the story. Verse 12 says, then you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. It's about a relationship with him. He wants a relationship with us. Psalms 91, 15, he says, call upon me and I will answer. Why? Because we're in relationship. See, it's not only what God gives you that is your blessing. The first determining factor when it comes to the outcome of the intent of your prayer is that you are in relationship with him. He doesn't promise to answer or even hear the prayers of those that don't know him who are not in relationship with him. There's only one prayer that he will respond to that person. It's a prayer of faith. It's a prayer of confession. Saying, God, I'm not in relationship with you, and I need to be. Forgive me of my sin. Come and live in my life. I accept the price that you paid on Calvary's cross to pay for my sin and the consequences of it. He will hear that prayer of faith, bring you into relationship with him, and everything else will flow out of that. And I say that to say that you cannot equate activity with blessing. For David, he says here, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The word for God there is Elohim. It's the word deliverer. My deliverer, my deliverer, why have you forsaken me? That's a little bit frightening, isn't it? You are my, my hope, you, you are the way I'm going to get out of this. You are my deliverer, and you're not here. You're not listening to me. You're not responding to me. You could say, God, you're not living up to the nature of your name. If you are my deliverer, why am I still stuck here? Maybe you're sitting here today, and you've been calling on Jehovah Jireh. The Lord will provide, and you still have bills to pay. You've been calling on Jehovah Rafi, the Lord who heals, and you're still sick. Maybe you've been calling on Jehovah Shalom, the God of peace, and yet you still have to, have to drink before you get to bed at night. 
How can we honestly admit that we don't understand what God is up to? When there's times it looks like that God is not living in accordance with his nature and what he said he is. And we say, God, if you're my deliverer, why am I struggling with this? God, if you're my provider, why can't I make ends meet? God, if you're the God of peace, why am I still struggling in my soul and my heart? Let me show you a danger that happens when you get to that point and you feel forsaken, like God is not listening and God is not there. Because when you feel forsaken, you don't lose the need for what it is you're looking for. When you feel forsaken, you're still looking. And that's when the flesh begins to provide options outside of God's provision. It's important to understand this. Sometimes the reason that marriages get in trouble is because you feel ignored. And you don't lose the need for attention when you're feeling ignored. And so the devil says, well, I've got some other options for you to fill the need for your attention. See, it's dangerous when you don't straighten that out. When you don't fix it, then the flesh and the devil will begin to tell you that, that God can't meet your need. God's not capable anymore. But go back to Psalms 50, remember? The Almighty One, God, the Lord, the one who is self-sufficient and doesn't need anything from us. You're going to tell him that he can't meet your need? Maybe you don't want him to meet the need. But you still have a need. So when I feel all alone and I feel like God is ignoring me and I'm trying to get to know him more and I feel like it's just not coming together, how do I keep from falling into this trap of options that my flesh would give me? Here's the first thing you do. You rehearse God's character and not your context. Look at how the text develops here. My God, my God, Elohim, my deliverer, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from my deliverance, my God? I call by day, but you don't answer. At night, I can't get any rest. And then we get to verse 3. But, let me stop on that word. That word, in this context, is a contravening conjunction. Right, teachers? It's a contravening conjunction. In other words, it's a conjunction. We know what a conjunction does. It, it connects two phrases. But it's not just a conjunction. It's a contravening conjunction. In other words, the but is so powerful in its contravening subordination, subordinating nature, that the power of what comes after negates the power of what was before. You tracking with me? You right there? Let me give you an example. I love you, but you're getting on my nerves. <laughs> the power of what came after the but just negated what came before. Did you see that? That's a contravening conjunction. The effect of the second thought diminishes the first thought. I am crying during the day. I can't sleep at night. That's the context of what David is going through. And then he throws in this conjunction, but 
In spite of the context and in spite of what I am feeling, what I know is that you can negate, you can counteract, you can work against, you can cancel out what I feel about what I'm going through. That's a positive. I gave you a negative example. I love you, but this is a positive of that. Every now and then, when the context is not what you want it to be, you got to allow that contravening conjunction to do the talking. You say, what I know about you, God, can overcome what I feel about my circumstance. So watch what he continues to do. I am feeling all this, I'm experiencing all this, but you are holy. I feel forsaken. I feel like you're not even listening to me. I'm crying during the day. I can't sleep at night, but you are holy. I can't find a job, but you are holy. I can't pay my bills, but you are holy. I am miserable because my wife threatened to leave me. No, no she didn't. But you are holy. <laughs> Yet. My child's into immoral things, but you are holy. I got medical problems, but you are holy. Do you see how it works? I got a serious problem, but who you are overshadows what I experience. The economy is in the toilet, but you're holy. I got some problems in life, but you're holy. And since I know that you are holy, that's powerful enough to keep my sanity until you deliver me. See, when it comes to prayer, sometimes we have to learn how to rehearse the character of God in spite of what we're going through. The reason we can't get out of the stuff of our life is because we keep rehearsing the stuff, right? You call people on the phone and you rehearse what you're going through, right? How miserable you are, what they did to you, what they're gossiping about, how they made you feel. And when it comes to praying... We need to change the language. Start rehearsing the character of God instead of the context of my circumstances. That doesn't mean that I ignore the circumstances that I'm facing. The value of prayer and the value of God's power means that I serve a God that's bigger than my circumstances. So that when we wake up in the morning, we don't give our circumstances the dominant position in our mind. The power of the context of my circumstances is what allowed to overwhelm me. I wake up and I acknowledge the character and the nature and the holiness of God. Holy, as you know, means to be separate, to be set apart. It's unique. It's in a distinct position for a special purpose. So to say that he is holy is to suggest that he is unique in thought, in word, in action, in motive. God's ways are not our ways, are they? He is holy. That word holy suggests that God is seeking to reveal the beauty of his character in the midst of my context. So when I say you are holy... I am identifying and I am ascribing the beauty of God's character into the midst of my circumstance. Even though my context doesn't look like it has any beauty at all. 
So when I keep rehearsing that you are holy, I understand your nature and your character, eventually I'll begin to see God in and through my circumstance. And eventually I'll come to a point where I can thank God for my circumstance. Because if God is in them, I know that all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. But I have to bring my mind in a line with his purpose before I understand that. So let me encourage you in your prayer life to rehearse the character of God. That's where so many of the Psalms are, are really good for prayer. To start acknowledging who God is. God, you're holy. God, you're wonderful. You are king. You are mighty. You are high and lifted up. You are glorious. You are awesome and you overcome. So begin to rehearse his character, and you'll start to see his beauty in the midst of your burdens. And let me suggest something else out of here. We need to prepare a place. Oh, I forgot to throw that up for you, sorry. Prepare a place for his presence in your problem. You are holy. And he goes on, and he says, you are enthroned on the praises of Israel enthroned, you are seated, you are crowned, you are installed in the middle of our praises. He takes a central position so that when I praise God, I place him in a central position in the midst of my circumstance. Prayer that is attached to praise is it's not about singing. It's not about clapping, raising hands, or anything else like that. You don't have to have a choir to praise God. You don't even have to have a good voice to praise God. Amen. <laughs> Nothing to do with music at all. When you understand prayer that is armed with praise, you recognize that praise is a weapon as a part of our spiritual warfare. Prayer and praise is when you call on the name of the Lord and you bring him into the middle of your circumstance. When you praise the name of the Lord, he is ready to manifest his power in the most appropriate way in what's going on around you. So praise invites God into your space. Now there's some implications of praise. There's some implications of this space. We may need to clean up some space in order to Invite God in. Let me say two things about this. First of all, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you are not saved, born again, the terminology that we might understand, there is nothing you can do to clean that space up. That's his job, right? Because salvation is not about me. I cannot get myself ready to come to Christ. There is nothing that I can do because everything that I am is wrong. It's in opposition to him. God is holy, as we said. He's set apart. And he's set apart from sin. And the scripture says, my righteousness, the very best that I have to offer him, is nothing more than a filthy rag. Therefore, I cannot clean myself up in preparation of receiving him into my life. I have to come to him, as I described a few moments ago, and say, God, I am a sinner. I need your salvation. And I invite him in. Now, once you are a Christian, I think there are some things that you can do to clean up your life. 
I need to come and I need to say, Lord, I know I'm not perfect, but I willingly, in surrender, I invite you to fill my space, fill my circumstance, fill my troubles. See, what I think is, it's a tough thing to invite God to come in and fill my life when I'm still living in sin and not willing to give that up. That's what I'm saying we need to clean up. You cannot continue to live in your sin and still have praise in your house. You you can't live in your sin and have peace in your home. You can't be sneaking off and enjoying your private sin and enjoy God and you can't ask God to give him, to give you his best when you have not given him the thing that he asked for. How can you live as a gossip and continue to have a vibrant devotional life? How can you speak praises on Sunday and cuss and curse on Monday? How can you cry out to God in your time of need but ignore your brother and sister in their time of need? How can we sing, Lord, prepare me to be a sanctuary, and then we imitate the world in the way we think, the places we go, and the things that we do, so that when others look at us, they say, well, he's just like me. What's the difference? What's the point? How can you ask God to give you his best and not bring him what belongs to him? We have a tendency to think that praise is merely clapping hands and singing songs. That's not praise. We are inviting God to be central Allowing him to sit down in the middle of our situation, our circumstance, and allow his will to be done in that circumstance. So that I can say, as David ultimately said, whether you deliver me or not, I'm going to praise you, Lord, because you are holy. Let me conclude with this thought. Find God in the negatives of your circumstances. As you read through this psalm, it's pretty negative. In fact, you could say David is almost suicidal. I'm forsaken. God is far from my deliverance. He's not hearing my prayer. I'm crying in the day. I can't sleep at night. I'm a worm, not even a man. Everybody hates me. Everybody's talking about me. Everybody's trying to kill me. They're mocking me. They're mocking you. But what I want you to notice is what he does with all of that negative. Even though David is dealing with all the negative aspects of his experience, he is alive enough to know who to return it to and who to express it to. No matter how negative the situation there is, there's something to praise God about because you're alive enough to call on his name. So find a reason to talk to God and praise him Because the negative has not consumed me. He is still keeping you. He's protecting you. He's sustaining you. He's covering you. He's not letting it get the best of you. So even in the midst of it all, the stuff that we encounter, lift him up. Invite him to sit down in the middle of your situation. Because when you begin to praise God, as we discover in verses 22 and 23, David begins to take it out of the singular and he makes it plural. You see how it goes? I'm going to praise God with you. I'm going to praise God for you. We are going to praise God together. There's something contagious about praise. He says, I'm going to proclaim God's name to my brothers. I'm going to praise God in the congregation. Everybody who fears the Lord, praise him. 
I'm not just going to praise God by myself. I'm going to invite others to join together with me, all those who fear the Lord. There's an infection about praise. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Exalt his name together. We need to praise him in spite of the negatives. We can say, Lord, there is times I feel forsaken and there's times I'm going through a lot of stuff, but you're holy. You have in your bulletin the words of a song, I'll praise you in this storm. And I will lift my hands for you are who you are, no matter where I am. And every tear I've cried, you hold in your hands. You never left my side. And though my heart is torn, I'll praise you in the storm. Don't know what the storm is for you, particularly today. Some of you have shared some things, and we pray for those things. Would you lift him up? Would you acknowledge his character, his nature, the reality of who he is despite where you are, and praise him in a storm? Father, I pray that we would come to understand and come to know who you are. I pray, Father, that we would learn of you as we walk in relationship with you. Lord, I pray for those that may not know you as Lord and Savior. They, they don't have that personal relationship. They know about you, but they have not come to a point where they're willing to let go of their sin and confess it as being in opposition to your will and purpose. Lord, I pray that they would come to realize the beauty and the benefit of walking in with you and that they would receive the free gift that you offer because of your shed blood. And Lord, for each of us that will undoubtedly encounter any variety of circumstances from day to day and year to year, help us to be reminded of who you are, even in the midst of our storms. Help us to exalt you above all, we pray in Jesus' name.